I hope you all are doing well. I hope you had a, have had a good week. Uh, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 7, and we'll be starting in verse 5 in just a few moments. Last time we were together and finishing up Nehemiah 6 and, and moving just a little bit into chapter 7, it was Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, and we, we talked about uh, a Resurrection Sunday, but in our chapter that we finished, chapter 6, we saw how the, the walls were finished, right? This kind of the, the crescendo event that we've been looking forward to for months now, it seems like, in Nehemiah, just as we were in Ezra for the temple to be rebuilt. Now the, uh, the walls around the city are rebuilt, they're completed, and they're finished. And one of the things that we we talked about, and this was kind of our transition into Easter and the resurrection, was that even though that the walls were finished, this great hope that they've been working toward and, and, and pressing into and trying to do so much to, to, to get there, their work was not completed. Right in the chapter 7, Nehemiah moves right into the next project at hand, which isn't walls or city, but it's the people. The people become the project. There's more to be done, and we're going to see that start today in the rest of chapter 7. Now, if we can be honest, I think we can say that the Bible, at times, can be a pretty strange book, right? We can read some things and we go, what? A lot of that's cultural, like we don't, we don't understand because, because we're... 2,000-ish years later or whatnot, and it just doesn't translate, doesn't work with us. Like we just don't, under, we don't understand the certain cultural practices or not. But also the way that the Bible is organized and put together at times can be strange, can be difficult. And if you are one of the ones who like to look ahead, then you happen to know that Nehemiah chapter 7, the rest of it, is another list. And that's why I say that the Bible can be strange, because why another list? I mean, this is like our third or fourth list now in Ezra and Nehemiah in our, in our series that we've, been, that we've been going through. And believe me, this week, when I started reading it back and, and getting back into Nehemiah and preparing for, for, for Sunday... Believe me, the temptation to just say, it's another list, it was Ezra chapter 2, let's go to chapter 8. Because chapter 8 is really good. There's some really good stuff in chapter 8. So it is really tempting. And honestly, these lists are very hard to preach for an idiot like me. They're hard to preach. And I can't imagine how difficult it must be for you to hear me preach a list in the Bible. Must be hard. So what in the world do these lists have any profit for? Why are we going to look at it? What does it have to do with, with us, the church, or the gospel? Are we really going to be built up 
by reading another 125 names? Well, first, and this is important, the Bible is inerrant. The Bible is inspired by God. It is his divine revelation from the very beginning to the very end. Not just Romans 8, not just the Gospels, not just Genesis or Revelation or the Psalms or Ephesians, but the whole canon of Scripture is inspired in an inerrant word of God. It is divine revelation. All of the Old Testament, all of the New Testament, every bit of it. So guess what that includes? The lists. The parts we don't understand, the parts we want to breeze by, the parts we don't understand, the point of it. But yet we know that all of it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. So we look at all of it, as we can. This is God's word, and that's a really good reason to look at Nehemiah 7. Second, Nehemiah 7 is another list of the people of God. Now that is very important because this list is telling us that this is God's people. That it's God's people. That these are real people with real names, with real families, with real numbers, and real personalities, just like each and every one of us. That these are, yet these are God's people. And that God's people have been numbered. God's people have been counted. God's people have been recalled. And that tells us something extremely important. That God has not forgotten his people. God has not neglected his people. God has not turned away from his promises. God is faithful to his promises. Now that is important as well, right? This is important. The Lord was faithful to them, fulfilling his promises to them. And if God is faithful in fulfilling his promises to them, then will not God be faithful in fulfilling his promises to you and to me through his word? So we're going to look at Nehemiah 7. And I'm going to spare you from reading all of those names. You can try it later on today. And we're going to read parts of the passage so that we have an understanding of what's happening. So I'm going to spare you my pronunciations. But I want you to know from the get-go that Nehemiah 7 is actually a recalling of the list from Ezra chapter 2. If you look at Ezra chapter 2, the same list that Ezra uses here is the list that Nehemiah is recalling. 
And what we're going to look at mostly today is the reason why Nehemiah would recall this list once again. Why? So understand he's recalling it very purposefully. Nehemiah chapter 7, starting in verse 5. Then my God put into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at first. And I found written in it. These were the people of the province who came up out of captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his, each to his town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, not the same Nehemiah, Azariah, Ramia, Nehemiah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Misparath, Bigvi, Nehum, Bana, Banana, right? <laughs> the number of the men of the people of Israel. And so goes forth the list of all of these names. And then it transitions to the priests and the Levites and the singers and the gatekeepers and the temple servants, the sons of uh, the son of the servants of the sons of, uh, of, of Solomon and such, continuing in verse 61. The following were those who came up from Telamah and Telaharsha, Cherub, Adon, and Emar. But they could not prove their father's houses nor their descent, whether they belonged to Israel. So the son, sons of Delah, the sons of Tobiah, the sons of Nakoda. 6.42. Also, the priests, the sons of Hobiah, the sons of Hakiaz, the sons of Barzillai, who had taken wife and the daughters of Barzillai, the, Gile the Gileadite, and was called by their name. These sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but it was not found there. So they were excluded from the priesthood as un clean. The governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until the priests with Urim and Thurim should arise. Verse 66, the whole assembly together was 42,360. Besides their male and female servants of whom there were 7,337, and they had 245 singers, male and female. Their horses were 736 mules, 245. Their camels, 435. And their donkeys, 6,720. 6, now some of the heads of the father's houses gave to the work. The governor's, governor gave to the treasury 1,000 dariacs of gold, 50 basins, 30 priests' garments, and 500 minas of silver. And some of the heads of the father's houses gave into the treasury of the work 20,000 derricks of gold, 2,200 minas of silver. And what the rest of the people gave was 20,000 derricks of gold, 2,000 minas of silver, and 67 priests' garments. So the priests and the Levites and the gatekeepers, the singers, 
Some of the people, the temple servants and all of Israel, lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. This is the word of the Lord, and may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy, inspired, inerrant word for his glory and our joy. Amen. So like I said, this list sounds somewhat familiar from Ezra chapter 2. Sixty-eight verses, several different groups, 125-odd-so names, thousands of people numbered all together. So why talk about them again? We've already established that this is certainly God's word and shouldn't be skipped over. Well, why we should talk about them, I think, first starts in what Nehemiah was doing. And why Nehemiah wants to bring out the book of genealogy and look back. Well, look back at verse 4. Verse 4 says, The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses have been rebuilt. So in verse 4, Nehemiah is telling us of the problem. The next problem at hand, the next thing that as a leader he is going to attempt to accomplish. And the problem is, is now that the city is done, the walls are built and they are up, who's going to live in this city? Who's going to live here? Who's qualified to live within the city of Jerusalem? Are they going to let just Anybody come and live now in their city? Well, knowing Nehemiah and knowing his commitment to the scriptures and holiness, no. He is going to maintain the fact that they were a holy nation, a holy people. So it must be the Jews, his brothers, his sisters, who he is going to call to come and live within the city. But how is he going to do that? So here's what I think he's doing. He's trying to establish Jerusalem to be a city of the people of God once again. And that's important, of who can live there and why they can live there. In Ezra chapter 2, verse at the very end, it ended the same way as verse 73 does in Nehemiah 7. It says that all the people settled in their own towns, but not in Jerusalem. And that's the problem. Eventually, and and when we get to chapter 11, we will see that the people will will cast lots to to bring one out of ten people to come live within the city of Jerusalem in order to repopulate the city. So apparently, again, as we see, the city is empty. The walls have been rebuilt. People went home. The city is empty. Everyone went and lived in their small towns and out in the country where they settled earlier and their families have settled. What's the point of having walls if there's no one to live behind them? Well, there's also more going on here than just 
mere pragmatism, we build it so they should come kind of thing. There's more happening here, but there's something spiritual happening. That within the city of God, God's people need to live in it. As we've seen throughout our time in Nehemiah, we have seen time and time again that Nehemiah was a man, a leader who knew the word of God. He knew the scriptures and he had been seeing, as we've seen, he has been seeing that God has been fulfilling his word and fulfilling his promises through him and through them. So clearly what would have been on Nehemiah's mind is the promises such as Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31 is the, the, the prophecy of the, of the new covenant that is, is coming, and he's remembering this and how God was going to establish a new covenant with his people. It says, uh, I believe it's verses 31 and 32, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. So the new covenant that's coming, the new promise. But that promise of a new covenant continues in verses 38 through 40 in Jeremiah 31, saying, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city shall be rebuilt for the Lord. From the tower of Haniel to the corner gate, and the measuring line shall go out further, straight to the hill of Garib, and then shall then turn to Goa. The whole valley of dead bodies and ashes and all the fields as far as the brook, the brook Kidron, to the corner of the horse gate toward the east shall be sacred to the Lord. It shall not be plucked up or overthrown anymore. Nehemiah is remembering this, recalling this. Jeremiah 31, and how God was fulfilling his promises. The city is being rebuilt. The walls have been rebuilt. The temple has rebuilt, been rebuilt. God is fulfilling his promises. He sees the fulfillment of God's word. So Nehemiah says, well, what's the next, best, that's the next thing we have to do? We need to repopulate the city. And so this became Nehemiah's burden. Verse 5, he says, Then my God had put into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by their genealogy. So he's going to use the genealogy to organize the people. But what does he say there in the beginning? He says, My God had put into my heart this was God's call upon his life now, was to put the people in order. Rebuild the city is rebuilding this people. And he was confident that it was the Lord, that it was the God, that it was his God that has been leading him. I want to make very clear that this is not just something Nehemiah was acting on because it was a feeling. This wasn't just a feeling because he firmly believed God's call on him through the fulfillment of his word. So he could say as confidently, my God has put into my heart, just as confidently as David could say, the Lord is my shepherd. And as we can confidently say, the Son of God loves me, 
and has given me, given his life for me. Now, do we say that confidently because we feel it? Partially, but not completely. Because oftentimes we do not feel it. We don't feel as confident that those things are true. But we say them because it's in his word. And his word is true. And that's why Nehemiah could say confidently that my God has put into my heart these things. It's a very important point here. Because we don't merely trust feelings alone. Feelings are helpful, but feelings often lead to mess when divorced from truth. We trust in Scripture alone. So what did Nehemiah, so what did God, excuse me, exactly put into Nehemiah's heart? What is he leading to do now with these, with these people? Well, that's what I want to spend the rest of our time doing, is unpacking this morning what I hope you will see the great connection that it makes for us and the church and why he would recall this list once again. The Lord had put into Nehemiah's heart to do what? To rebuild the walls, to rebuild the city, and they did that. But now, the whole point of repopulating the city is to do what? To rebuild this people. And how would that rebuild the people? Well, we'll see in a second. In order for this city to look forward, to know what it means to live in the city of God, to be a people, to be a people that's being rebuilt, Nehemiah looks back. He looks back to a previous genealogy that we studied months back now of a previous generation that came into the land being called out of exile and brought into back to the land led by Zerubbabel and the priest Jeshua. So he stops and he looks to this book of genealogy to look to the past, to look backwards in order to understand and know what kind of city they were going to be in the future. Nehemiah knows that Jerusalem was no ordinary city. Jerusalem is not Jericho. Jerusalem is not any of those other cities. This is the city of God. This is the city where, where God uh, sent his people the city where, where God had this people build the temple. The city where God's people would live in the land that he has given them. Again, back to Jeremiah 31, we already established that foretold was going to be a rebuilding of this city. The city was going to be re rebuilt. This is the covenant that the Lord had made with their fathers, promising them a land and a city to dwell in. So in one sense, yes, the Lord is, is absolutely fulfilling his promises to his, to his people as the temple's built, the wall's built, the city's being rebuilt, and now Nehemiah is looking to repopulate the people as he's bringing them back up as a people, remembering who they are as a people. But 
the rebuilding of this earthly city of Jerusalem is not the complete fulfillment of all of Jeremiah 31. In fact, all the while this city was being rebuilt, there were prophets prophesying, namely the prophet Zechariah. And Zechariah, during the time of this rebuilding, rebuilding of the city, he announced that even though this city is going to be rebuilt, that there still would be a greater future return and restoration for them to look forward to. Basically saying, we're going to get there, but this isn't it. We're going to get there, but this is just going to be the, the bridge or the train or the track that's going to get us to the next step. John Calvin understand these promises to reference to the, the perpetuity of the church in the New Testament. That the church is the new rebuilt city of God through the work of Christ. And certainly, the church is far greater than a city. We are far greater than the city of Jerusalem. We are far greater than the temple. So certainly, though, even though the church is greater than the city, I believe these promises have in view something more than just a church. Than, or just the church, excuse me. And I don't mean that lightly. But I believe it's pointing to a real city, a real land, in the new heavens and the new earth. These promises were anticipating the new Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem that would be coming down from heaven in the figurative perfections that will endure forever, for all of eternity. The promise that Nehemiah was holding on to is the same promise that as the church, we not only see fulfilled now in Christ, but what we will see completely fulfilled in Christ in the future when he comes again. What this text should remind us of the transition of Nehemiah now building this people is that the ball of history is continuing to roll by the hand of God. And this helps us understand then the reason and the importance of rebuilding and repopulating the city. But Nehemiah here, just like Ezra did, he writes this historical account and he puts in this genealogy once again to show us that these returning Jews were a long line of a very important covenant. So the importance of the city, absolutely. And this is why they need to know as a people who they are in the line of the important covenant that they are in. This is a reminder of that. And if he could show and prove that they were part of this long line, this covenant of people, then those that would inhabit the land of the city, they must be distinct. They must be different. They must be separate from all the rest of the nations. That you just can't live in your, your own towns and your own cities anymore. You must come and live within the city of God. They needed to know, and this does this, they needed to know that they were in covenant with the Lord and their Gentile neighbors were not. 
for now, before the Messiah, the center of all of their religious life was in the city of Jerusalem. When the temple had been rebuilt, they celebrated, didn't they? Then they celebrated the Passover together. Next chapter, in chapter Nehemiah chapter 8, after they read the law, they will celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles once again. So what does all this mean? All of these points, feasts, cities, walls, families, names, genealogies, temple, all of these are points of continuity. They're all reminders to them, to this assembly, one major thing, that you are the people of God. You are a distinct and blessed people of God. And I'm bringing this genealogy back to remember, for you to remember this is who you are. Don't forget it. Don't forget what God has done. That you are chosen. That you are loved. That you are set apart. And they're, I believe, uniquely blessed. Because they didn't have a king. The lordship of God is their king. The Lord is their king. Now, I know this may be hard to believe, but recalling this genealogy was probably the best way to underline this truth, that they were God's people in covenant with him. He gives them all the names from a past generation where God had been faithful to his people. Ninety years earlier, to not forget who you are and where you came from. Now, chances are, if they were like any of us, they had already forgotten it. They've already forgot what really makes them distinct. I think we would say today that many Jews have forgotten who they are. No one from 90 years earlier, that generation that he recalls in this list, they're alive anymore. All they have is their documents and their histories. New generations are prone to forget the past. Moses warned the original exiles from Egypt to do what? To remember. Remember. Teach it. Remember and teach. When you walk by this river and your kids see these stack of rocks and they're like, Dad, who, what people would do this? We're the kind of people that would do this because God has delivered us. They teach it to the next generation and the next generation and the next generation. We teach what the Lord has done because if you forget what the Lord has done, then you're done. That's what Moses said. It's what we read this morning in Deuteronomy 30. This is very important. To forget who you are as a people. To illustrate that, when communism began to take over 
several countries and regions of the world, the very first thing that they do, and generally it's a very subtle thing that they do at first, is that they remove history. They change history. And in many cases, they literally tear it down. Monuments, statues, books, art, whatever gets in the way of reminding a people of their history. We may ask the question, how does, it, how does something so evil take over such a people? Because when the people are so disconnected from their roots and from their identity, anyone can take over. Any ideology could take over. Let me flip this around to something good now. Imagine if you had the ability to know and to be reminded of the sacrifices that your grandparents and your great-grandparents and your great-great-grandparents had to endure in order for you to be at this place and in this moment. I wish I, wish I was more connected to my family history. I have no idea of when or where Roberts first immigrated to the United States. And how they ended up in Oklahoma and Texas is beyond me. I even, I've never even been there, which is where my grandfather is from. At some point in time, my grandmother on my dad's side, the Snyders came from Germany. And somehow, and in some way, they ended up in Baltimore. Sometime in the 1800s is my guess from what I do know. But I don't know the story. I don't know how, and I don't know why they came to the United States. What, what drew them here? And then I don't know what it took for them to survive, to make it, to do something, and to make something of themselves, because knowing my grandmother and coming from Baltimore, I know they made something of themselves. I'm sure I would be more proud. I'm sure I would be more humble and thankful. As you all know, I need to be all three of those. I do, however, know when, how, and why my mom's parents came to the United States. I do know what some of what they had to endure before moving to the United States, living under Nazi occupation, living under the Nazi bombing beforehand in the city of Rotterdam. If you know the history, it was decimated. My grandmother almost starved to death. I remember my grandfather vividly telling us. For me, just to think about it, you see it's how it's getting me, right? Because I wouldn't be here. My children wouldn't be here if they hadn't endured. One of the saddest declines I think that we have seen, even in just my lifetime alone, is that in this postmodern age, history has little or no objective value to the present. And that is just not true. 
It's denying our children the, the riches and the value of who they are. A sense of personal pride in identity, not victimhood. You never know where you are going if you have no clue where you've been. Brothers and sisters, I say all this to you, not to bore you with my own family history, but to help you understand the value for us to understand our history, our history as the church. One of the, one of the reasons why we value the Bible so much is because it reveals to us God's faithfulness in the past so that we can see and live the blessings of faithfulness now in the present and then understand his faithfulness and believe that God will be faithful in the future. That's why we, one of the reasons why we look to the Bible. We look to a historical, biblical account. We look back so that we can understand who God is his character and nature and how he has interacted with his people and how his promises now roll to us. And we in the present can live faithful for the future. And we can endure future suffering. It's our connection to remember the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, the new covenant in Christ that is, that is of grace one of the reasons why this Bible means so much to us. Because we can't be disconnected from the past. In lesser ways, it's why we read old dead guys and preachers like Augustine and Luther and Calvin and Knox, Owens, Spurgeon, Edwards, and so many more. It's why we've been studying church history on Wednesday nights. It's why we sing still good old hymns. It's why we should read biographies of missionaries, of men and women who gave everything for the sake of the gospel so that others would delight and enjoy God in Christ. The church should not be detached from its history. And as Christians, we must be connected to our past so that we know how to be faithful in the present. To endure suffering in the future. And to sustain the church until Christ returns for generations to come. It has been said that the church... That, the church, that in the church, every generation in the church must discover the gospel for themselves. And I believe that to be true. But that discovery is always rooted in historical, biblical truth in the scriptures. Because there is where we see who we are and whose we are in Christ. That may not seem like a very important point, but it's very necessary in understanding who we are and where we come from and being faithful in the present. 
It's why Nehemiah brings up this genealogy. He points them back to, to remember who they are in covenant with the Lord and to remember his faithfulness for the present and for the future. But he does so that they will be looking to the present, to be faithful now. The present problem wasn't just a need for people to move back to a city, but for the right people to move back into the city. For the right people to move back into the city. This list demonstrates all the features of the faithfulness of God's people must always be true. So this list tells us these features of faithfulness of, of God's people, as God's people. And these features are, are what's always true about God's people. First we see, and there's two of them, I have two of them highlighted today, and it will be finished. First we see how there, is a, there are groups of people that are set apart, consecrated to the service of God. Right? So first in verses 8 through 42, there's a list of all the people and the families that are going into the land. But then the list transitions into this consecrated group. The priests, 39 through 42. The, the Levites, 43 through 45. Temple servants, 46 through 56. Sons of Solomon servants, 57 through 59. And also the singers and the gatekeepers. And, and what all of these particular groups for. They are consecrated to serve the people of God and to serve the Lord. God had established these people. We talked about this in Ezra chapter 2. God had established these people. God had set these people apart to serve the Lord and to be the representatives between the God and the people. And they would serve in the temple. And they would offer sacrifices, right? This is what the priests and the Levites and the other groups all, in a sense, assisted in one way or another to do so. In the Old Covenant, this select group was only for some. This select group was not for everybody. You had to be born in this certain tribes to, to be in these groups. And you had to have a particular genealogy to be in these groups. It's, a select, it's very selective. But in the new covenant of Christ, all of God's elect are consecrated to serve the Lord and one another. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, a very important verse. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter is not talking to the Jews of the Old Testament. Peter is talking to the church, which is filled with Jews and Gentiles. Those who were once not welcomed into the city have now been brought into the city because of the blood of Christ. And now we are a chosen race by God's grace. 
chosen, particular, separate, elect, a royal priesthood. Not just the select few from the tribe of Levi or sons of Aaron, but all who are in Christ. They are a royal priesthood. That we are a chosen, holy nation, a people for his own possession. To do what? Claim to herald, to exclaim the good news of the gospel. We were once not a people. We just weren't people that were going to be asked to move into the city. We weren't even allowed into the city. And now we are a people, a consecrated people by the grace of God for the glory of God. And each of us who are in Christ, if you are in Christ, then you are a priest. A priest that does not make sacrifices for your atonement or for the atonement of others. But in Christ's righteousness, we meditate, we pray, we love, we serve, and love one another. Because by his grace, each has received a gift to serve one another as good stewards God's varied grace, 1 Peter 4.10. So first we see a consecrated people. Second, second, we see in this list the commitment as a people to be holy, pure, and separate. He, he lists again for us in, in, in verses 61 through 65 this, this group of over 600 people who are wanting to go back to Jerusalem with them or go back to the land with them, but they could not, for some reason or another, prove their genealogies or lineage. Some of them even said that they were, to, that they were priests or could be priests. They believed that they were Jews. They wanted to go back. But what was the outcome? Well, they could come with them, but they certainly could not serve as a priest until another priest consulted the Urim and the Thurim, which is to say they casted lots and they trusted in the Lord with the results if that came down to it, if they were unable to prove it. But do you see the seriousness once again, not only in light of why he's bringing the genealogy back to show that they are a separate holy people, but also that they will take holiness seriously and the worship of God seriously. They were willing to exclude in order to protect the holiness of the people. Holiness is vitally important for the people of God. For the priests and for someone who may think they're a priest, holiness is important. It was their value, importance for them to say, it is good for you that we wait and trust in the Lord before we just assume what you say. And despite their shaky lack of lineage, 
each of these groups' commitments still was to go, serve, give, wait, and have faith, but also to maintain the holiness of the people of God. We talked about this a lot in, in Ezra 2. This is an area, an issue of holiness. This was to be a distinct holy people. This is what he's wanting them to remember all the way from the get-go, that they are to be separate from the nations. And how are they separate? It's being holy from not sinning, not being like the rest of the world, and realizing who they are and whose they are would do that. And in this call and the priority of holiness, is it any different the church. In fact, the same language that's used in the New Testament to be holy is directly quoting out of the Old Testament. Be holy, for the Lord your God is holy. In another way, Jesus says it in Matthew 5, verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if Salt has lost its taste. How shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. To be salty means to be useful. And to be useful is to be holy and separate. To have a taste, a distinctiveness out of a tasteless world that is unsalty, that it is tasteless. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Christians are called to holy lives, to put away sin, and all, of our con and, and all of our conduct is to be holy as the Lord God is holy. If you are a Christian, if you are a Christian, then this is your calling as well, to be holy, to be distinct, to be separate from the rest of the world, in all conduct. In all conduct. And yes, we still will sin, but we confess and we repent of that sin and pursue holiness. Repentance is pursuing holiness because repentance is turning away from sin and toward whom who is holy and to pursue holiness unto God. We practice this same principle as, as a church, as members of this church, who as the church we have the authority as God's people to pursue holiness within the body of Christ. If someone desires to join this church, or if that person is already a member, shows that they are unrepentant of their sin, what are they showing? They're showing that they do not know God. If they remain in their unrepentance, they're showing that they do not know God. And as the church who 
knows God and is pursuing holiness, we want to obey the word of God, we want to obey Jesus in order to remove them from the church membership, so then that they, at least from our perspective, they are under no illusion that they are, that they are in good standing within the church or under no, no illusion that they truly are a Christian and they have a right standing before God. As a corporate body, we are being holy when we practice those principles as the scriptures teach. As a church, we are still calling people to join the true people of God by repenting of their sin and trusting in Jesus Christ as their Savior. If you wanted to join the people of God in Nehemiah's day, what would you have to do? Well, you'd have to get circumcised if you're a guy. You would have to separate yourself from all other people and nations, and you would go through a very long process of purification. If you want to be a part of the people of God today, all you must do is recognize the authority and the holiness of God that you have sinned against him. That you have sinned against an infinite God, and then as you have sinned against an infinite God, there will be eternal judgments. But if you repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ for the work that he has done on the cross and in his resurrection from the dead, then you shall be saved. Turn from your sin. Confess and believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior, and you will be saved. And then you are made new. That's how each of us who are now in Christ have been made new through his work, through his holiness, through his righteousness. That's how we have been transformed. That's how we have been given a righteousness that is separate, holy, to where we are now called a royal priesthood. <laughs> it's amazing. So as Christians, as a church, we pursue holy lives. We look back to understand and remember who we are in Christ, and we know how that changes how we live in the present. Nehemiah was building an earthly city and trying to populate this earthly city based upon the promise found in Jeremiah 31. That was just an earthly fulfillment, but there will be a heavenly spiritual fulfillment of this promise that God is building an eternal city for his people. We live not only for the present or back in the past, but brothers and sisters, we live looking also toward our future. Our holiness now is showing what we are truly living for and longing for in the future. In John's vision in Revelation 21, he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. 
And I saw saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. As I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. He also, also he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Brothers and sisters, we have much to look forward to. We have much to look forward to. For there is this city, as we see in Revelation 21, is the city in the future that we look and long for. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your word. We pray, O oh God, that it would have its full effect in our lives to draw us closer to you, to bring about the repentance of sin and great delight in Christ, a call to holiness, a call to endure, a call to look forward as we have looked back, remembering to look forward to the day that you come back and you make all things new. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for our time this morning and we give you all the glory in Christ's name. Amen.